Exodus chapter 20. If you're there, say, I'm there. And God, verse 1, and God spoke all of these words. How many people realize this is an important passage? God spoke all of these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Say that to someone. You shall have no other gods before me. Now look back at him and say, not me. I'm talking about God. Just in case, this is not some sort of human worship thing. You shall not make for yourself any idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Don't misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you'll labor and and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son nor your daughter nor your manservant or maidservant nor your animals nor the alien within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not cover your neighbor, neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. And when the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in, in smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and they said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. Father, I thank you so much that you are not a distant God, that you speak to your people. What, it, it, it is a mind-blowing idea that the one who created everything out of nothing would entertain us with your voice, that you would communicate in our language, God, in in the simplicity of who we are, Father. God, I pray today that we would understand just a little bit more about who you are and how you operate. And God, flesh out the reality that we are not to have any other gods beside you. Father, let that exclusivity be impressed upon our hearts today. We bless you. We love you, God. We lay down our idols at your feet. God, you're good. We bless you. In Jesus' name, let the church say amen. You can have a seat in the presence of the Lord. Keep your Bible on hand because we're going to jump into a, a different passage of Scripture to attack this verse in particular It starts off and says, God spoke all of these words. God spoke all of these words. Could you imagine living in a world where we were unsure of what God wanted? You ever thought about that? What if we lived in a world where we were just unsure of what God wants? God doesn't start with this place of of this unsure, I'm not really, I don't understand. God likes to start from a place of clarity. 
in a world where there's so many competing ideas, if you think about the pagan cults and the religions, Baal worship, the asterisk, there was sort of this, this sort of thing where God wasn't clear. You could worship all these different gods. It wouldn't make that much of a difference if you were worshiping Baal and the Ashtoreth gods. But when God comes in, he gets, he gets very clear, and he starts off these commands that he's— You all remember last week the terror of God? This terrible God that came— Do we have to go back? Do we got to re-listen to the tape? The gloom Hebrews talks about when he came and descended and the smoke and the fire, if you touch the mountain, it's in trouble. This God begins to speak, and he begins with a commandment that is offensive almost. You are to have no other gods before me, besides me. There, it's not like, oh, before me, and then you can have somebody. He just basically said, you should have no other gods before my face because the God of the Bible is very exclusive. Look at someone and say he's exclusive. He's intolerant. He's unflexible. He's not willing to shift all because culturally relativism is fine and you can do your thing and I can do my. That's not the God in the Bible. This God says there is no other God besides me. None. Not that basketball game you're waiting to see. Not that job you go to. There's, there's so many things we prop up as idols, don't we? That we place in the place of God. I wanted to illustrate this from the Bible itself. In 2 Kings chapter 1, you can turn there if you want. This is a story about the king of Israel, a guy named Ahaziah. Ahaziah. I don't know. these. You know how these names go. Ahaziah was sitting in his palace or whatever, and there must have been a lattice and things, and he, he falls down out of this lattice. We don't really know how this happened or what happened, but he took a pretty big fall. The fall was big enough where he got injured so much where he thought, well, I guess I'm going to die. And so he decides to consult Beelzebub and ask him if he's going to be able to recover. And Elijah, as they're going to Beelzebub or Beelzebub or however you want to pronounce it, Elijah the prophet intercepts these clowns and says, there are, are there no other gods in Israel that you're going to go to Beelzebub and get some advice about this fall you've just taken? In 2 Kings uh, chapter 1, verse 3, I'll read it for you. It says, but the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, go up and meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and ask them, is it because there is no God that you're going off to consult Beelzebub, the god of Ekron? Therefore, this is what the Lord says to the king of Israel. You will not leave the bed that you are lying on. You will certainly die. How many people want to be an Old Testament prophet giving these fun words? You're just going to die, king. Of, of And we know what happens when he tries to stop Elijah. But when the messengers returned to the king, he asked them, why have you come back? And they said to the king, they said, a man came to meet us. And he said, go back to the king who sent you and tell him this is what the Lord says. Is it because there is no God in Israel that you're sending messengers to consult Baal the God of Ekron? Therefore, you won't leave the bed you're lying on. You will certainly die. And the king asked him, he says, what kind of man was it that came to you and told you this in verse 7? They said, oh, he had a garment of hair and had a leather belt around his waist. And the king said, that was Elijah the Tishbite. Not many people were dressing like Elijah back then. 
But when we read this passage, we think, come on, God, he was, he was sick. Have you ever been in a place of real desperation where you thought your life was on the end? And you know God is out there, but sometimes you might just want to consult someone else. Oh, that's just me. That's just me. We should go out to uh, India and work on some new type of healing or do this or do that. Surely there's something beyond you, God, or this God or that God. You know, the thing that we miss in 2 Kings chapter 1 is it wasn't that long ago that Elijah went up to Mount Carmel and defeated all the prophets of Baal. How many people remember that story? Isaiah would have known about this Baal thing and how the God of Israel was the real God, but in his moment of desperation, he chooses Baal. And God says, you've made your choice, and now you're dead to me. Look at someone and say, you're dead to me. That's what God is saying. You're dead. This is over, you, you know. Because the pagans, God, don't care if you worship many gods, but, but God, God is so exclusive. If you don't get anything else from today, get that, that God is exclusive. That is not how we are. You know, uh, the label, uh, if by whiskey refers to a 1952 speech by a guy named Noah Sweat Jr. And he was a young lawmaker from the U S state of Mississippi. And the subject was whether Mississippi should continue to uh, prohibit, um, which it did until 1966, or finally legalize alcoholic beverages. So this lawmaker stands up and he says, my friends, I had not intended to discuss this controversial subject at this particular time. However, I want you to know that I do not shun controversy. On the contrary, I will take a stand on any issue at any time, regardless of how fraught with controversy it might be. You have asked me how I feel about whiskey, all right? Here is how I feel. If when you say whiskey, you mean the devil's brew, the poison scourge, the bloody monster that defiles innocence, dethrones reason, destroys the home, creates misery and, po misery and poverty, yeah, literally takes the bread from the mouths of little children. If you mean the evil drink that topples the Christian man and woman from the pinnacle of the righteous, gracious living into the bottomless pit of degradation and despair and shame and helplessness and hopelessness, then certainly I am against it. But if when you say whiskey, you mean the oil of conversation, the philosophic wine, the ale that's consumed when good fellows get together, that puts a song in their hearts and laughter on their lips and the warm glow of contentment in their eyes. If you mean Christmas cheer, if you mean the stimulating drink that puts the spring in the old gentleman's step on a frosty, crispy morning, if you mean the drink which enables a man to magnify his joy and his happiness and to forget, if only for a little while, life's great tragedies and heartaches and sorrows, if you mean that drink, the sale of which pours into our treasures untold millions of dollars, which are used to provide tender care for our little crippled children, our blind, our deaf, our dumb, our pitiful, aged, and infirm, to build highways and hospitals and schools, then certainly I am for it. That is my stand. I will not retreat from it. I will not compromise. Don't we just love it both ways? We do. Yahweh does not let that fly. You cannot have your cake and eat it too when it comes to the God of the Bible. 
You shall have no other gods beside me. There is an exclusion to this. That's why we know this God is not made up by men. Who would invent a God like this? No, it's far more simple. Pastor Greg, you can keep doing all the stuff you're doing and living your life the way it is. And this God just loves you. He just wants to give you a big old, big old hug. He's fine with you serving those other gods in your life. Come on, be a part of this Jesus group. That's great, Pastor, but you always like to preach from the Old Testament because the New Testament is more about love, it's more about grace, right? It's all good. Jesus is a little more broad than this Old Testament stuff you keep filling us with. We want to know about this love and grace of Jesus. In Matthew 10, Jesus walks in and he says, whoever loves their mother or father more than me. Or their son. I love Xavier. That's my buddy and Armani. Or their daughter more than me is not worthy of me or the one who doesn't take up his cross and follow is not worthy. This is just foolish madness, Jesus. No, you're ex- Jesus, are you exclusive to? Matthew 10 is just Exodus 20 in another location. All of the law is summed up. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. You can't get around this first command. God, if you're taking notes, God assumes that he must have the supreme place of affection in your life without any exception. How many people can say, really say amen to that? I don't know that we ever get to a place where we can say that. There's this grace. See, whenever I read Exodus 20, there's sort of a paradox that I come to. And you're going to see it as well because we sing these songs, especially today. And even the, the words that were spoken about this bondage and this freedom, we have a certain mindset when we think of what freedom is about and what bondage is about and what God is freeing us from. But in the Bible, we see a grace that's so overwhelming and overflowing and unbelievable, but we also see demands. See, God says in chapter 20, he started off, he says, I am the God who delivered you out of Egypt. How many people know that's a great, amazing grace? They did nothing. God, I am the God. But then, all because I have redeemed you, he says, you are free to be mine. You are now free to obey me. Let me say it in a different way. Really, I freed you from slavery so that you could be my slave. I'm just talking the Bible right now. How many people realize God freed you to become a slave? You ever read that passage where there is no revelation? The people cast off restraints. There are some restraints in your life that are good. See, every freedom in your life has a corresponding bondage, and every bondage has a corresponding freedom. You can be free from that toothbrush. But you'll be a slave to cavities. 
You can be free from getting up and jogging and working out and eating right or walking, but you will be a slave to your weight and to your health. You can't be free from both. Well, pastor, I have a solution. I will just stop eating. Then I don't have to work out. Well, then you're free from eating and working out, but now you're a slave to malnutrition. Well, I'm going to keep it real today on my job. I will be free of this rat race today and my job today. Well, you will be a slave looking for a new position. Sometimes freedom is just not that free. See, absolute freedom doesn't really exist. God freed them, but the freedom was a response of obedience. That's the paradox we see in Scripture, even in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you receive from God? You are not your own. The language of a slave, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, you need to honor God with that body that you have. You can't just go sexual immorality all day. No, God bought you with a price. Look at someone and say, I hope you're a slave. See, the only way you can be free from sin is to become a slave to God. And if you're not a slave to God, then trust me, you are a slave to your sin. Now, whenever I read the Ten Commandments, are you all track, Are you all okay? I wanted it to be real flowery and encouraging. We got some new visitors. I wanted to really just make a good impression. But now I'm feeling like I'm bringing you into this slavery thing, and you're like, what is this God and all this stuff? So please forgive us. Next week, it'll be much more joyous tone. Thank you. Welcome. <laughs> if you were going to bracket these Ten Commandments, what you'll notice is that Commandments 1 and 2 really deal with the, the, people's thoughts about God. You know, no other gods beside me, no graven images. But then it goes, commandment three is don't blaspheme God. So it goes into our words about God. And number four is honor the Sabbath. So it's an action dealing with God. So think about that. It moves from thoughts to words to action. And then when you go into the, the, the last six through ten, the, the don't, don't murder, don't adultery, no stealing. So it goes back to your actions in society, and then it goes into your words. Don't give false testimony. And then once again, verse 10, don't covet your neighbor's stuff. It goes back into your mind. I just think that's a beautiful way. It's a, our thoughts, our words, our actions. Our actions, our words, our thoughts. God is always dealing with this internal obedience when he's talking to us about how we need to operate. It's not just what we're doing. He wants a heart transformation. He wants us to think differently about him. I'm always wondering why God didn't start somewhere different. You know, if you wanted to create a nice, fun story and get people excited, you would say, oh, I'm the Lord your God. Don't you murder, you know. Don't you run at your neighbor with an ax in your hand. That's amazing. Let's listen. Or, or, or why not we start with your, you don't commit adultery. Imagine someone going into someone else's bedroom. Oh, let's listen to these commands. God, you could have written this better or I'm struggling with my family. Why not start about honoring your father and mother, you know, that's a sermon that really matters to us right now, where our families are at and what we're doing. But you start with God. 
You shall have no other gods before me. Because why, God, are you doing that? Because obedience to God never starts with your needs. It never starts with your needs. It always starts with God's position in your life. Obedience to God, I'll say it again, never begins with your circumstances and needs, but rather the position you've placed God in your life. Okay, you keep, you keep looking at me. Turn with me to Mark chapter 10. If you keep asking these questions, we're going to have to go there. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Mark. If you can follow along. Mark chapter 10. This is a a very popular uh, story. The rich young man, as Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees and he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You got to love the questions of Jesus, don't you? Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Are you calling me God? See, you know the commandments, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't give false testimony, don't defraud, honor your father and mother. Now, I just read, we just talked about the commandments. How many people realize those are not all the commandments? How many people realize when you're talking to Jesus, who is God in the flesh, he likes to unpack things a little bit? You think you got some mystery going on. Jesus is always unpacking stuff in a different, you know the commands, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't give false testimony, don't defraud. He goes, teacher, I've done all of these things. I've kept these since I was a boy. And then the Bible says that Jesus looked at him. Are you guys reading this? Verse 21, what does it say? He looked at him and what? I've never noticed that before this week. Our Bible says that Jesus looked at him and loved him. He didn't just look at him. He looked at him, and there was this overflow of love in his heart for this young man and where he was at. He, the Bible says that Jesus loved him. Do you realize that it is, it is an unbelievable act of God's love in your life and in my life when he exposes the idols that we have? He looks at him and he loves him and he says, well, son, you lack one thing. Go and sell whatever you have and give to the poor and you will have great joy. And the Bible says that gloom came over him. Why? See, Jesus came at the first commandment. It wasn't that you have great possessions, son. It's that those great possessions have you. You think you're free. See, idolatry always has to do with the first commandment. What is the thing in your life that you've elevated to the place of God? See, the most important, most loving thing that Jesus can do in any of our lives is to help us to see what our idols are and then take them, pick them up, and smash them on the floor. You don't love God. You love money. You love, you love your possessions. 
Yeah, you follow, you don't murder, you don't steal. But when I say make, have no other God before me, lay down your idol, I can't. Could you, could you imagine standing before the Savior of the world, asking him for the key to eternal life, and he says, sell that little stuff you got saved up, and you look at him and say, I can't. I can't. What is it about us that is willing to trade eternity for a bowl of soup? Somebody help me here. What's wrong with us? We don't get it till we're on our deathbed. I've never seen a person on their deathbed bragging about their idols. That is the great compassion of God when he looks at us and he says, hey, you love money or you love that relationship, or you love your health, or you love this more than me? What is that thing that if it came in your life, you would begin to praise it and worship it and bow down at its feet? What is it that owns you? God, keep exposing our idolatry. The great Shammai Israel, Deuteronomy chapter 6 I want you to listen to this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love him with all your, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. I don't want you to go anywhere without thinking about my words. Now, if you were reading this in the NIV or the uh, ESV or whatever version we have, we do the text a little bit of injustice because there's a continuity in the flow of the passage in, in verse 4 and 5. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4 to 5, and then 5 to 6. It's, it's, we lose the flow because it would really say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you need to love him with all your heart and your soul and with all your strengths, and you do it because of these commandments that I'm giving you today. Place them on your hearts. See, you can't separate the three. I want to love you with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, God. Then I need to follow something. I need to hear your word and allow your word to guide my life. And I need to make it such an integral part of all of my life that even my kids understand it and my wife. And everywhere I go, when I wake up, when I go down to sleep, I need to have your word flowing in me. See, the God of the Bible doesn't only say there are no other gods besides me. He requires you to be passionate about them. The God of the Bible does not care that you came to church today. It's irrelevant to him. He wants your passion. He wants all of you. He wants you to just be so consumed with who he is that you went with all my heart and all my mind, all my soul and all my strength. 
you know, it's amazing. You know, I, I love the Kings. This month, they're going to uh, reach that pinnacle. They're, they've been married for five years. <laughs> Times 10, right? And, and that's, all, that's, am, that's amazing to me. I, you know, when, 50 years, that's amazing. But imagine if, if when we came to church, Mr. King would sit over here and Miss King would sit way over here. And then you ask Miss King, what are y'all doing later? Well, you know that raggedy old Stan. He better go golf because if he comes home, you best believe he's going to ha- hear it from me. You're like, well, that's, well you, made, you made it to the fifty. And then you talk to Brother Stan and say, Miss King, you know, back in the day, I don't know. Well, I'm, I can't even say nothing bad about him. Isn't that messed up? I wanted to say something, but my brain stopped me from saying anything because there's nothing negative about Mrs. King. <laughs> Stan, be quiet. Don't get us all in trouble, okay? See, the question we don't want to know is, did you make it 50 years? The question is, are you still passionate about that person? You still love them. Is there something about your heart and your soul and your strength that cares about that person? Are you knit together? Is there something more than just you just live life together? See, God is not looking for you to just tolerate him. Yeah, God, I've been saved. You know I'm saved for like 20 years. Well, who is God to you? You know, we go and we hear the message. It's pretty good. He's pretty good. He's pretty good. And I remember back 15 years ago, I got in some trouble and I prayed and God helped me out. And, you know, all such, you know, God, he's there. He's there. I mean, how do we talk about God, right? He's cool. He's cool. I got to get this game. Pastor, what time is it? You know, God wants you to prize him. See, the nature of God is, 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 is different. You know, I don't watch much uh, basketball, but I, I, I caught that game last week with Golden State and the Rockets, I believe. And the thing that blew me away by these Golden State guys is that you leave them, you give them an inch, they're going to knock down a three. They're going to knock it down. It's like, and right when you think, well, they're going to let up, they keep knocking them down. They keep knocking these threes down. They just, they just keep on coming. If you leave a guy, it's like, guard him, guard him. He's going to keep not. They're not going to give up. They're going to keep knocking him down. They just keep coming. I'm sorry, Calvin. I know you're a LeBron fan, but just I noticed this. You want to leave the church because I'm talking about Steph and knocking down threes. But God wants you to lay down that idol, okay? Just lay it down. I love Calvin. He's a family. He's family. Him and Keith go at it all the time. See, God in your life and in my life, he just keeps coming. He doesn't want you to just be mildly pro-God. Okay, I'm cool. I'm cool with God. I believe in God. He's okay. That's not the God we serve. He doesn't want you to just acknowledge him. He wants you to adore him. He doesn't just want your approval. Yeah, I'm a Christian and God is cool. He wants your affection. 
He doesn't want just a, a simple confession. He wants there to be a craving in your heart for who he is. See, this is the nature of Psalm 43, and this verse brings such conviction to my own soul. Send me your light in Psalm 43 and your faithful care. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy mountain, to the place where you dwell. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God, my joy and my delight. Anybody have a little bit more joy in God? a little bit more delight in who he is. I pray that we get to a point where we can say with all of our hearts, Lord, we love you with all of our mind, soul, and strength. Or is that a prayer we can ever pray? I want to close with one more thought in this first law. I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods besides me. That in the midst of this passage of a command, there is also a gift. Look at someone and say, it's a gift. The gift that he gives us in this passage is this. It's his sufficiency. If God is saying that you are to have no other gods besides me, he's also saying something else. Thank you. I am the only God that you need. He's saying, I am all you need. I am all sufficient in every circumstance. He said, put all your bets on me because, look, I am more than enough. That's the gift he's getting. I'm greater than that thing. I'm greater than that circumstance. My God shall supply all. Have you taken him up on his word yet? See, the command is a gift. If you're writing that down, write it down. The command is a gift. I'm reminded of the story of Charles Spurgeon, the the 19th century Baptist uh, preacher over there in London. Uh, He started a pastor's college. And uh, there was a student who was coming to the class and his clothes were always disheveled. You know, the shirts had holes in them. And, this, that. and Spurgeon comes up to him one day and he says, look, I want you to take this note for me and take it to this specific address and wait for a reply. So he commanded him, go take this note to this specific address. And he walked up to a tailor's shop. And when the tailor got the note, he said, I want you to make this man a new suit and a new coat and place it on my account. The demand was for him to go to an address, but the gift was inside of the demand. See, the demand of God is this. You are to have no other gods besides me. And the gift is that you don't need any other gods besides me. Because the Lord is my shepherd The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. You will always be okay. One more verse. 1 John chapter 5. Verse 21, 
the very last verse in 1 John. Important enough to say it in closing. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Let's pray. Stand with me all over the place. (laughs) How many people today need to know that he is more than enough? I mean it. How many people today need to realize that he is our shepherd? There is nothing that we want or need, God, outside of his provision. Stretch those hands to the sky if you're able to. Father, teach us how to not place any other God before you. Point the finger, Holy Spirit, at whatever it is we've elevated to the place of provision and sustenance that only God, you alone, can hold. God, you are king. There is no God beside you. And I pray, God, even right now that this week would be a week of supernatural provision. God, that you would begin to open doors that no man could shut and shut doors that no man could open. That faith would arise in this house, God. Lord, somebody here is desperate. There's a need. There's something going on. God, and today we're placing all of our bets on you, God. And Father, stir our hearts with a great passion and a joy and a commitment, God, to you, God. Let us not be people that are just mildly okay with you, God, but teach us, God, how to, how, how to have our hearts captured by the God of the universe. Holy Spirit, you do the work. You move in our hearts. You move in our lives. Keep us, your children, from idols. We bless you today. Now, God, bless your people and keep them. Make your face shine upon them and give them hope and joy and peace. You're the great shepherd we shall not want. Bless them now as we leave this place. In Jesus' name, let the church say amen. Well, give God praise and give someone a hug on your way out. God bless you.